Well, on Wednesday nights, we have been studying the life of Elisha. Before that, we studied the life of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God that spoke primarily to the northern kingdom. Uh, When Elijah came on the scene, the nation of Israel had divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, all of the kings in the northern kingdom were corrupt and ungodly. And so God sent Elijah to preach truth to them, and God performed many miracles and great works through Elijah's life. And before Elijah was swept up into heaven, he didn't die. God just took him up into heaven with a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. Before he was taken to heaven, he trained or mentored his protege named Elisha. Now, to keep Elijah and Elisha straight, J comes before S, right, in the alphabet. So Elijah, J, comes before Elisha, S. Everybody got that? Okay, that's office trivia. Go, walk, in, walk in tomorrow and say, who knows if Elijah or Elisha came first, and see what they say. And, and you can show off your Bible knowledge, because that's what it's all about. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So we've been studying Elijah, and we've been studying now Elisha, and how he took over the prophetic role from his mentor, and how he was used by God to do great things. We, we basically said that Elisha was used to speak the, the message of God, and he was used to perform miracles from God to get people's attention. And we've seen that happen in various ways in his ministry. Well, tonight we see Elijah come, or Elisha come on the scene again, and we see God doing some things in and around and through Elisha. And really what we see in 2 Kings chapter 8 is we see some wonderful reminders of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. So if you look there at the top of your notes, we're talking tonight about the sovereignty of God. And just kind of a quick definition of the sovereignty of God. The, the, the idea that God is sovereign means that God is in control. He's in control. He has full and total control of, of everything. And that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. And we're going to unpack what the sovereignty of God looks like in, in our life, in the life of a nation, in, in others' lives, we're going to think about what it means that God is sovereign and the extent, if you will, of His sovereignty. So look there with me, 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Now, as I, as I speak tonight, I may provoke some questions. And if you have a question, I want to just encourage you to jot it down because we'll have some time at the end where I'll take questions. So if you have a question, jot it and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cover it. Uh, at the end of the time. And if I can't answer your question, then you can just email me. Um, and my email address is frank at longviewpoint.org. All right. Just kidding. I'm Wade, by the way. If you're, if you're visiting with us, my name's Wade. I'm the pastor here. Second Kings chapter 8, the Bible says, Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, you remember uh, back a little bit uh, uh, earlier in Second Kings, uh, the Lord had given a child to this uh, widow, and she rejoiced in this son, but then the son died. But Elisha comes on the scene, and, and through Elisha, God raises the son from the dead. So says, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine that will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman di- arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Thus begins a very interesting story and unfolding of events that all point to the sovereignty of God, the the control of 
God. So let me just give you several thoughts, six thoughts, about what it means that God is sovereign. And then after I do that, I'm going to give you some, some application, what this ought to mean for your life and my life, what this ought to do for us if we know that God is sovereign. So here's the first thing. Look in there in your notes. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that God knows everything. God knows everything. We see this reminder in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. We just read it, but let's look at it again through these eyes. Lost my place. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son, had, whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called a famine and will come upon the land for seven years. And so the Lord gives Elisha this insight, this knowledge into what God was about to do. And God uh, gave Elisha this knowledge. And so we see here God who is all-knowing, letting his prophet know, so he can speak on his behalf, what was to come. And this is just a, another reminder of many biblical reminders that God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's happened in the past. He knows everything that's happening right now. He knows everything about you, everything about me. He knows exactly how the future is going to play out. The, the theologians use the, the term omniscience to speak of God knowing everything. And that's one of the, the attributes of God that helps, us to re, helps to remind us that God is sovereign. Because how could God be in control if he didn't know everything? Right? I mean, he would just be, you know, kind of hoping so sometimes and taking some risks sometimes and thinking, I hope this works out. So if he didn't know everything, then how could he execute his plan and his works to perfection? Only, a, only an omniscient God can be truly sovereign. You think, wait, this is, so, this is, this is Christianity, you know, basics. Of course we know that God knows everything. We learned as, as little children in Sunday school that God knows everything. We, we know that way. Why, why are you reminding us of this? Because this idea, this doctrine of the omniscience of God is really under attack in different circles today. Did you know that? There's some folks that, out there that teach in colleges and seminaries and even pastors and pulpits that believe that God doesn't know the future perfectly. Like he kind of has a good idea and he's wiser than all of us, but he's still, he's still kind of just thinking, well, I hope this works out. <laughs> what, a, what an unbiblical picture of God. What we see here is God knows what's going to happen perfectly in the future. And you see God in the Old Testament predicting events Six, seven, eight hundred years before they would happen, and they happened just like God said. You know why? Because God knows everything. So if we see God predict an event in the book of Isaiah, for example, and it happened seven hundred years later through the life of Jesus Christ, then we could say, well, God knows what he's talking about, right? So if God predicts a future event, future from where we are today, then we should say, maybe he knows what's, what's going to happen, right? We should take him seriously. That's why prophecy is interesting, because God has told us how some things are going to happen uh, when it comes to the end times. And God knows exactly how it's all going to play out. So God knows everything. And only an omniscient God can be a sovereign God. If he didn't know everything, he would not be in uh, control. Uh, I, have, I have a hard time you know, making just basic decisions in life, because there's a lot of things I don't know, and you do too. And sometimes I make bad decisions. You ever made a bad decision because there's something you didn't know about, right? Some, some, some information you were lacking, so you made a really bad decision. 
and, and if God didn't know everything, he would make bad decisions. But the Bible says that God is good, and he does good. Psalm 119. Because he knows everything. So God is omniscient. He knows everything. That's the first idea of the sovereignty of God. Secondly, what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that God controls nature. God controls nature. Look in verse 2. So the woman arose after he told her that there was going to be a famine for seven years. He needed, she needed to get out of Israel. The woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And so exactly what uh, God said was going to happen, happened. She left, and we see that a famine comes on uh, the land, just like God said was going to happen. So we see here that God is using uh, famine... Uh, as an act of judgment on the nation of Israel. Remember, they had very corrupt, ungodly leadership, and God sent this famine for the purpose of judgment on this land. Now, another verse that speaks of God controlling nature. Turn to Second Kings. Second Kings. I'm sorry, Psalm. Psalm 105. We're in Second Kings. Psalm 105. Verse 16, speaking here of different things God had done through Israel's history. And in Psalm 105, verse 16, it says, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So he's talking here about the famine that came to Egypt. And remember the whole story of how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and Joseph, through a series of circumstances, interpreting dreams, became the second most powerful man in Egypt. And because he was in control of Egypt, he was able to save his family during the time of famine. They came to Egypt for grain. He was able to rescue his family, uh, the, the sons of Jacob and his father Jacob. But notice in verse 16 it says, when he summoned a famine. Who summoned the famine? God did. God was in control of the famine. God brought the famine on the land. So God controls nature. I think it's interesting that, you know, experts talk about, you know, what's happening with with the earth. And, you know, there are these folks that are global warming experts and folks that say there's no global warming and this is happening to the ozone and this is not happening. And there's all these arguments. And it's interesting that recently there was an expedition, uh, a ship that was going into the Arctic to do uh, some research on global warming and they were going up there to prove that the, the polar caps were melting at an alarming rate. Well, guess what? The ship got stuck in ice. All right? Now, I'm not saying there's not global warming issues or not. And they, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of our planet. But what I'm saying is this. Sometimes I think God, God uses nature to get our attention. And, and, and I think sometimes he likes to remind us that we're not in control. And he uses nature to do that. Look what it says there, that quote from Warren Wiersbe. When people ignore God's word, the Lord may speak through his creation and remind them who is in charge. I mean, uh, I mean, an ice storm reminds you just how fragile you are, right? I mean, we think we all got it together and we're really secure. Well, what about when our electricity goes out for two weeks? Right? Chaos. Right? Chaos. And things get very difficult. And I think sometimes the Lord can use 
the created order use nature to remind us that we are not in control. We are not in charge. And we see here God controlling nature to get, to get uh, Israel's attention, to send a famine as an act of judgment. So God knows everything. God controls uh, nature. The third thing I want you to see is that God controls matters of life and death. Look back with me in 2 Kings chapter 8. Something very interesting happens. I love this story. 2 Kings chapter 8. So the woman goes to the land of the Philistines during the time of famine. Verse 3, at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So she's been gone for seven years. She wants to get her land back. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. He was Elisha's servant, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. But notice there, he's talking about how God had used Elisha to restore the widow uh, woman's son to life. This is just another reminder that God gave this woman a son when she wasn't able to have a son, and God raised this son from the dead when he died. And, and just this just is a, a, another indicator for us that when it comes to life, when it comes to death, God is in control. He's the one calling the shots. And it says this other places too. Turn to Psalm 66 with me. Psalm 66. Look in verse 8, Psalm 66, verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living, and has not let our feet slip. So who keeps your soul among the living? God does. So if you're alive, you know who you have to thank for that? God. God's the one that keeps your soul among the living. Turn to Job, right before Psalms, Job. We see Job in the midst of great suffering holding on to some truths about God. And in Job chapter 12, verse 10, look what Job says about the Lord. Job chapter 12, verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing. I read this morning uh, in Matthew how, the, how Jesus reminded his disciples that there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that God does not care for, that God is not in control of. And he's saying, if, if, God, if God's taking care of the sparrows, he'll take care of you. That's the point that Jesus is making. And, and Job's saying the same thing. Every, every living thing, the, hand of, the life of every living thing is in the hand of the Lord. And the breath of all mankind. So those verses remind us that your breath, your life, your beating heart is in the hands of God. He's the one that holds your life in his hand. And let me show you another verse. Turn to Ecclesiastes with me, right before, or right after uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Job, uh, Psalms, Psalm, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Look in, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So right after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. 
This is a sobering verse. You ready? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Now, the Bible says that God fixes our time. That time when we begin, the time when we end, he knows that is in his hands. And there's not a thing in the world we can do about it. He holds it in his hand. Now, we are making great leaps and strides when it comes to medical technology, medical testing, medicines, treatments. But, you know, there's one thing we haven't figured out yet, right? How to beat death. Because you're not going to beat death. Because that's not in your hands. that, That is in God's hands. He has the power to retain the spirit power over the day of death. We do not have that power. Now, does that mean that we don't wear seat belts and we don't, you know, we don't take preventative steps with our health and we don't take vitamins and get, you know, get tests and things like that? Does that mean, no, we do that because God gives us wisdom and God works through means. But God has the numbers of our days in his hands. He's the one that calls the shots over matters of life and death. And and that's very comforting. You know, I'm I'm really, I'm really, really grateful uh, for for doctors and, and, and medical professionals and hospitals and treatments. I really, really am. I'm very, very grateful for them. And, and doctors do their best. I, I've been with families in, in really difficult situations where, you know, the doctor says, your loved one has such and such amount of time. And they're, they're making very educated guesses. They're doing the best they can. They're trying to give the information to the family uh, that the family needs as, as they move forward. And I'm just so grateful for, uh, for, for caring doctors that, 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 that are so diligent in that. But ultimately, a doctor doesn't know. They make their best guess, their best estimate, educated guess. But matters of life and death are in God's hands, right? They're in God's hands. And so we need to realize that. Realize he's in control. He's calling the shots. Our life is in his hands. I'll talk about what that ought to mean for us later on, how that ought to affect us. But right now, just know that God controls matters of life and death. Number four. This is where it gets real interesting. God providentially controls the events of our life. God providentially controls the events of our life. So you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 8, the woman rides back into town and she wants her land. And before she comes to the king, we see this scene where Gehazi is talking to the king, and they just happen, look at me for a second, they just happen to be talking about Elisha. And they just, they just happen to be talking about Elisha raising a woman's son from the dead. And then this same woman just happens to walk into the room. Look what it says in Second Kings chapter 8. It says... Verse 4, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. And so... The king is so impressed that the woman who he'd just been hearing about and her son who he just heard about walks in the room 
I mean, this gets his attention. They says, give her back everything. Give her back her land. Give her back everything she needs. And we see there God providentially working circumstances uh, in favor of this woman. They just happen to be talking about her and her son. And she walks in the room. God providentially controls the events of our life. Now, we need to understand what providence is. We hear that term a lot. If you look there in your notes, the providence of God is defined by J.I. Packer as this. The unceasing activity, unceasing, he's always doing this all around us, it's unceasing. The unceasing activity of the Creator whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, it, 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 his providence springs from his goodness. Amen? Let me say it again. His providence springs from his goodness. Amen? All right? In overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence. And here's the phrase I want you to see. Guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men and directs everything to its appointed goal. Why? For his own glory. So that, that definition, which, which is a, a good summary of what the Bible teaches, says that God controls all events, all people, and works them together for his purposes, for his glory. He's always at work. That is the providence of God. Now, here's what that means for you and for me. There's no such thing as luck or chance. Every now and then I slip and say it, maybe at a you know, sporting event or something, but, but I, I try not to say good luck because I don't believe in it. No such thing as luck. There should be no room in the Christian's life for superstition. My grandma was my, my grandma was very superstitious. She was Italian, uh, grew up in Queens, New York. Her parents came over, over through Ellis Island from Sicily, and and she grew up in a very you know superstitious environment. And and she carried that superstition over to us. We we went over railroad tracks. We'd have to hold up our feet, and you didn't open umbrellas in the house. And black cats terrified her. I mean, you name it. She was very very superstitious, and she lived with this fear that that these different you know, ra- different random uh, cosmic forces were controlling things around her instead of the, the trust in that, in that the God of the universe is controlling everything around us. There's a big difference. There's no life, uh, no room in the Christian's life for superstition. I mean, there, there, there's just not. The number 13 doesn't bother me. No big deal. One of my favorite episodes of the Andy Griffith uh, show, uh, Barney asked, and, uh, I mean, Andy asked Barney, he says, uh, are you superstitious? And I'm not superstitious. He said, if you had to sit in seat 13 on an airplane, would you, would you sit in that seat? He said, I'd take the next flight. I'd take the next flight. There's no room in the Christian's life for superstition. There's no such thing as luck or chance. Uh, I tell you, one song that I don't like, it's a Christmas song. I love the song. I don't like this line where it says, uh, through the years we all will be together if the, what? Fates allow. Right, what's that? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. That that song, beautiful song. If the face, of, but I heard some Christian singers redo it, and they sing it through the years. We all will be together if the Lord allows. That's a lot better, a lot more biblical. Because there's no such thing as fates or chance or or happenstance or luck. It, there's there's no there's no room for that in the Christian's life. Because if we say that there's something that is luck or something that is chance or something that is fate, then we've removed that something from God's control. And when God's not in control, that's scary. 
That's scary. The implications of God not being in control are terrifying. So that's the idea of the, the, the providence of God. Now look at that last sentence. When you look at life through this lens, when, you're, when, you're, when you believe that God is governing all events, when you look at life through those, those lenses, you will begin to marvel at God's activity. If you begin to look for the providence of God, you will, listen, you will see his fingerprints everywhere. You'll see these, these coincidences everywhere. And, and you'll see that, that God is, is actively engaged. And I think a lot of people miss God here because they're not looking for God. They miss that God is at work all around them. They miss that God is providentially weaving events and people and lives together for his purposes and for his glory. So because they're not looking, they don't see it, right? They don't see it. But we need to look. Look for the fingerprints of God. And when you see them, you will begin to marvel at how God works in your life, in your family's life, in your church, in your community, in your nation, in your world. The providence of God. Now, let me just give you a quick little... Warning here. I read this from a book by Jerry Bridges. He has a great book called Trusting God. And he talks about the providence of God. And he says, isn't it interesting that we only use the phrase the providence of God to talk about something good? Like, you know, in the providence of God, I met my, you know, I met my future wife. You know, God providentially arranged us and we met in, you know, in this town or this activity or this college. And, and we got married. That's, God, that's the providence of God. So is it interesting we don't say, in the providence of God, I broke my leg last week? We only use providence for good things, right? Question. Is God in control of the bad things too? He is. So even, e- listen, even when you suffer, even when you're hurting, even when life is, is difficult, even when you've had a bad day, Look for God's activity. Look for his fingerprints. Because not only does he work together things uh, in our life that are good, he takes things that are bad and uses them for our good. Romans eight twenty eight, God works everything together for the good of those that love him. So when you're going through something difficult, begin to look a- as to how God's going to make it good for you, for his glory. And so that's the idea that God providentially controls the events of our life. Really cool story. I love how this widow walks in with her son and they were talking about her. Neat. Number five, to go even a step further, God controls nations and kings. God controls nations and kings. Look in verse seven. The scene changes back to Elisha. It says, now Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him, took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? So these are Syrians. They're not Israelites. And they had some dealings with, with Elisha in the past. If you remember some of the past messages, they came to kill Elisha. And, and Elisha uh, was given a great victory by God. But, but they come to him because they know he's God's representative. And they say, is, is King Ben-Hadad going to make it? Is he going to die from this illness? So look what Elisha says in verse 10. 
Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. But let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying that the, the, the illness would not kill him. Something else would kill him. So what else was going to kill him? We'll keep reading. It gets really interesting here. He fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. This is Elisha staring at Haziel, the servant to the king. He just, it's a stare down. I mean, it's a stare down. I have stare downs with my kids. We try to see who can stare at each other without laughing, you know. This is not like this. This is, this is intense. I mean, Elisha's looking at him, and it says, the man of God began to weep. He wept as he, as he gazed at Haziel. Why is Elisha weeping, gazing at this servant of the king? Haziel said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Oh, terrible. And Haziel said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? In other words, I won't have this kind of power. I won't have this kind of authority to do, do something like this. Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. In other words, the illness will not kill you, king. But the next day, something else killed him. Look what it says. The next day he, Haziel, took the bedcloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. What a terrible story, right? What a, what a terrible story. So Elisha is given this, this information from God that, that the king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, would not die from the illness, but he knew that Haziel would kill him. And that's exactly what happened. And, and Elijah, Elisha weeps over what was coming from the, the hand of Haziel. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole story. This is not the first time we see Haziel's name. As a matter of fact, hold your place and per- turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Back to Elijah. It's after Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he fled to the wilderness because he was fearful for his life, running from Jezebel. And look what it says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. This is God reiterating for Elijah, Elisha's mentor, what he wanted him to do. Look what it says. Verse 14, he said, this is Elijah talking. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's where Syria was. Renee, you've been there, Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. So it was in God's plan that Haziel be a king over Syria. But Elijah was swept off into heaven before it happened. So what happened here? Did Elijah just not get the job done? Did he, was he disobedient here? We don't know. But it never happened under Elijah's reign. But God had a plan. And God made sure that Haziel became the king over Syria. Look what it says there. Verse 16. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, 
shall anoint to be king of Israel, and Elisha son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. A little bit later in 2 Kings 8, Jehu is anointed as the king of the southern kingdom. Now, here's what's going to happen. Jehu and Haziel are going to be instruments in the hands of God to judge Israel, the northern kingdom. Haziel is going to be a major thorn in the side of of the, the kings of Israel. And Jehu comes against the kings of Israel. And so God tells Elijah, way back, I'm going to raise up Jehu, raise up Haziel. And here in 2 Kings chapter 8, we just read earlier, that's exactly what happens. God makes sure that Haziel gets to the throne. And God uses him as an instrument of judgment for his people. Because Israel turned their back to God. They were wicked. So God judges them through Syria. So what's happening here? Listen, God's calling the shots. Who's on the throne, isn't he? He's calling the shots. He's arranging it just like he wants it. God controls nations and kings. Now, keeping that in mind, turn to Proverbs with me. Proverbs 21. Proverbs 20. 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So you know, water always takes a path of least resistance. If you want to direct it, if, you, if, you, if there's not too much of it, if you want to direct it, you can, you can put something up to direct it a different way. And what he's saying here is that's how the king's heart, every king's heart is in the hand of God. God directs the king's heart just like he wants to. And so we have presidents and we have kings and we have parliaments and we have congress and we have rulers and we have nations and we have all of this these different things going on but god's the one in control he's the one calling the shots and he's somehow going to use it all for his ultimate glory turn to psalm 2 with me let me show you even a more striking passage psalm chapter 2 just hang in there we'll get to application in a few minutes but I want to show you this. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against who? The Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. They cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want God telling us what to do. We don't want God telling us how to live. We don't want God calling the shots over our life. We're going to do our own thing. We don't care about what God has to say. So these kings, these rulers are gathering together, throwing off the authority of God over their lives. And it says in verse 4, look at this. He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. Is God threatened by a bunch of kings gathering together as his enemies? He's not threatened in the least. There's no emergency meeting of the Trinity in heaven where they're wringing their hands going, oh, what should we do? This king over here is making this decision. This king over here hates us. And this king over here is our enemy. And this king over here. that No, no. God's in control. He laughs when the nations rage and, and, and gather together against him. Look what it says in verse 4. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, who speaks of Jesus Christ. And so we see here God 
controlling nations and kings. He's calling the shots. And this is important because if you don't look at if you don't look at what's happening in the world through these lenses, what's happening can be very, very troubling. I mean, there's some scary stuff going on in the world right now, right? Scary stuff. But God's in control. And God can raise up empires. And God can cast down empires. And God can get a nation's attention if he wants to. He can send judgment on a nation if he wants to, if he deems it necessary. Which may be what's happening in America. God, God will judge America to get our attention. If we don't turn back to him, he will. And I'm telling you, we're not, we're not heading the right way. We are not on the right trajectory as a nation. We are heading the wrong direction. It's okay to share any opinion you want to share as long as it's not something from the Bible. The moment you say the Bible says or Jesus is the only way to salvation, the moment you say that, the entire nation turns against you, right, and just pours out its wrath on you. Who do you think you are saying something the Bible says? And they want to shut you up and get you off the air and, 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 and want to marginalize you and intimidate you into silence. That's what's happening in our nation right now. And I'm telling you, God's not going to stand for it. And so, God controls nations and kings. It's important to remember that. Let me give you a sixth thing to even go a step further. Back in 2 Kings 8. God controls human history. God controls human history. This is absolutely an implication of all that we've said thus far, but we see it here clearly in the text. Look with me in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, uh, the son of Jehoshaphat, uh, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in that way of the kings of Israel, as the house of, ah- of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you remember Ahab and Jezebel, they were enemies of Elijah. And Ahab's daughter marries the king of the southern kingdom. All right? He marries uh, Jehoram. And Jehoram walks in the ways of Ahab and Jezebel and the daughter of Ahab. He's, he's worshiping pagan gods. He's turned his back to the one true God. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 18. But look in verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, that's the southern kingdom, for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Now you know what he means there? In, in 2 Samuel, God appears to David and he says, David, you're going to die, but I'm going to give you a son. Your son's going to be a great ruler, a great king. His name's Solomon. And, and as a matter of fact, David, I'm going to make sure you have a descendant that, that is on the throne forever. And so he, he promised David an eternal uh, lineage of royalty. Now, how in the world was that fulfilled? Well, Jesus comes from the seed of David. He comes through that lineage. That's what Matthew 1 is all about. Jesus comes through that lineage. And so he's the light that will give, give, he's the lamp that will give light to the sons forever there in verse 19. And so here's what he's saying. I made a promise to David. I'm going to send a, a, a descendant that will be on the throne forever, King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. And because I'm going to send a, a king through David's lineage, I'm not going to destroy the entire nation right now. I've got a plan to send a king. Now, why did God send Jesus? Answer. 
Save our souls. To seek and save that which He saved. He sent Jesus because he loves us, right? So the, listen, the reason he doesn't destroy Judah is because of you and me. So he could send us a Messiah, a Savior, a King through David's lineage who would die for our sins. He has humanity on his heart right now because he wants to send a Savior for those that are separated from him. And so we see here God controlling human history for his redemptive purposes. If you look there in your notes, human history is his story. That's a play on the word history. His story of redemption. Everything that's happened in human history from Adam until now and everything that will happen from now until the end of time is God's plan unfolding. God doing his redemption thing. God saving and seeking those who need a savior. That's what God is doing in the world right now. And if you look at history and look for that redemptive stream flowing throughout history, history becomes really, really fascinating. Because it's all God's plan, God at work. Raising up empires like the Roman Empire and then casting it down. You know, before them, raising up the Greeks through Alexander the Great and then casting them down and, and, and putting all the pieces in place so he could send a Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. Amazing. Human history is his story of redemption. So, wait, how would you summarize? Listen, I can summarize all of human history in four words. You want to hear them? Four words. All your Western Civ you had to take in school and, and U.S. history and all that. Listen, I'm going to sum it in four words. You ready? Creation. Fall. Redemption. Coronation. Creation, fall, redemption, coronation. Creation, and then humanity fell, rebelled against God, Adam and Eve. That's the fall, that's two. And then God began his plan to send a Savior to die for our sins. Jesus came, and now God raised up the church to make, the, make the, the gospel message known to the world. That's happening right now. That's redemption. And one day, God's going to come and, and bring it all to a, a glorious coronation where King Jesus is, is enthroned, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that's, that's human history right there. And everything in human history, from Attila the Hun to Winston Churchill, falls somewhere under... Those four things happening in the world. That's what God is doing in human history. He controls human history. So, I hope we've seen here, just from 2 Kings chapter 8, the unfolding story, what God's doing, how God is in control, how God is, is calling the shots. But let me just give you a few words about what this ought to do for you and for me. How this ought to affect you and for me. What our response to God's sovereignty should be. And again, we'll take, we'll take questions here in just a moment. Number one, our response to God's sovereignty should be to trust Him in good times and in bad times. To trust Him in good times and in bad times. If He's in control, and He's good, and He loves you, and you're His child through Jesus Christ, and He works everything together for your good and for His glory, then whatever's happening around you, you can still trust Him, right? You can still trust Him. I like this quote from Jerry Bridges. This, again, comes from his book, Trusting God. Confidence in the sovereignty of God in all that affects us is crucial to our trusting Him. It, listen, if there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust Him. 
His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust him. Right? I mean, if, if, if he didn't have all power, it doesn't matter how much he loved us. He wouldn't be able to execute his plan for our lives. He would be in heaven wringing his hand saying, oh, I hope it works out. Right? And that's not very comforting, is it? I like what Margaret Clarkson writes. This is beautiful. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. Let me read that again. That is profound. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. Don't you like that? I like that. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. Remember when Satan came to afflict Job? God put limits on what he could do to Job. Satan was under God's control. Satan, you might say, was on a leash. All evil is subject to him. And evil, this is so good, evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. And so God's in control, and even when you're suffering, even when evil touches your life, understand that evil could not touch you unless God allowed it, and if God allowed it, he had a purpose for it and in it, and he's going to somehow redeem it and use it for your life and for his glory. Incredible. I mean, only God can do that. I mean, only God can take the, the brokenness of our life, the, the, the mess-ups in our life, the sin in our life, and, and all of our junk, and, and then other people mistreating us and, and evil happening, and take all of that and somehow redeem our lives and make something beautiful out of our lives. To trust Him in good times and in bad times. That, is, that should be our response to God's sovereignty. So when things are good, when things are good, Say, praise the Lord, because he's the one extending that goodness to you. When things are bad, praise the Lord, because God has a purpose in allowing whatever has touched you to touch you. That's why James says in James chapter 1, really shocking, he says, rejoice when you encounter various trials. That's easier to say than obey, right? Rejoice when you encounter various trials. Why would you rejoice when you go through trials? Because, James says, the testing of your faith produces character, produces endurance. God can use hardship to build you up and make you into the person he wants you to be. Right? I believe there are things that simply will not happen in our life apart from suffering. God uses suffering to get our attention, and he uses suffering to mold us and make us into who we need to be. So the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. So to trust him in good times bad times, that's the first response to God's sovereignty. Number two, to rest in him. Our response to God's sovereignty should be to rest in him. I want, to be, I want to be gentle here. I really do. I'm trying to think how to say this pastorally. If you're saved, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you've embraced Jesus, invited Him into your life, followed Him, He's forgiven you of your sins and brought you into a relationship with the Father. All right? Sins are forgiven. 
You've been given the gift of eternal life. The Holy Spirit lives in you now. All that's all that going on. All right, if you're saved, then why is anxiety and worry ruling you? I mean, if all this is true, if all this is true, and I believe biblically it is, then why would we let worry and fretting and anxiety rule our lives? It just seems kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean, if God's in control, I'm not saying your circumstances are silly. I'm not saying that you're not hurting or going through something difficult. I'm saying to respond to difficulty by, by being anxious and fretful when God's calling the shots and he's using it for your good, it just it doesn't add up, does it? It takes a, a maturing walk with Jesus to get to the place where you can rest in his sovereignty. Where you can just rest. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. You've heard me say it before. He says, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I love that. The sovereignty of your head is like a soft pillow. It helps you sleep well at night because you know that when you go to sleep, he's not going to sleep. Just like he was calling the shots during the daytime, he's going to call the shots in the nighttime. And when you wake up in the morning, if he gives you life, he's going to call the shots then too. He's in control. That doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow that we can lay our head on at night. So, so if, you, if you struggle with anxiety and worry, the Bible says give it to him. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So if you believe he's in control and you're anxious about something, you pray. You give it to him. And when you do that, he takes the anxiety off of you and replaces it with peace. Pretty good deal, right? Who wouldn't trade anxiety for peace every time? Pray. Give it to God. And God will give you that peace to rest in him. And and let me just say this. Out there in your family, maybe you have some unbelieving family or in your workplace... You have some unbelieving folks around you that, that, that are not followers of Jesus. It is a great testimony for them to see you resting in the midst of difficulty. When they see that life can't shake you up, not that life's easy, not that life, hard things don't happen, bad things don't, but when they see that you can walk through that with a, with a, with a, a trust in God, it speaks volumes. I tell people, you know, all the time, when you begin to live for Christ publicly, people may ridicule you. You know, they may, they may say, oh, you know, Jesus freak, or, you know, uh, Mr. You know, Mr. Church-going guy, or church-going. You know, they may, they may, you know, give you a hard time because you're trying to publicly live for Jesus. But I've always maintained this, and I've seen it happen time and time again. Your, your friends and, and co-workers, when the wheels fall off of their life, guess who they're going to want to talk to? The person that's modeled peace in the midst of the storm. They're going to say, how did, how did you manage that? How did you pull that one off? And that's your wide open door to talk about Jesus, right? To say, it's not because I'm good. It's not because I have life figured out. But I've got a Savior. He's forgiven me. He walks with me. He talks with me. He dwells in me. He holds me in his hand. And because of him, I can have peace in the midst of the storm. To rest in him. One of the songs that, that I sing with my 
my girl, I call her my baby girl, she's three now, but the, one of the songs I sing with her, and she loves this, her favorite, if I ask her what she wants to sing, she wants to sing, is, is with Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm, right? With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm, and that is a wonderful, wonderful reality. Rest in him. Let me give you the third thing, and we'll be through. Our response to God's sovereignty should be to trust him in good and bad times, to rest in him, and to worship him. Turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So the psalmist here is saying, God, we don't deserve any glory. You deserve all the glory. It's all about you. Love that verse. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. Look at this. He does all that he pleases. Verse 3 is a, another reminder of the sovereignty of God. God's in the heavens. He's ruling and reigning. And he does whatever he wants. And by the way, what he wants to do is always the right thing. Because he always does the right thing. Right? So he's powerful. And he always wants to do the right thing, so he has the power to always do the right thing. That's Again, that's the sovereignty of God. Comforting thought. But notice here that this verse is surrounded by worship. Like you're the one calling the shots. You're the one doing what you want to do. You're the one that's in control. Not to us, but to your name give the glory. And then the rest of the verse talks about, the rest of the psalm talks about the futility of idol worship. Why would you want to worship an idol that you made with your hands? When you can worship the one that made you, the one who is in control of the universe, the one who is sovereign. And so we should worship God in light of, in view of his sovereignty. It should, his sovereignty should cause us to stand in awe of his great and awesome and holy name. And we should worship him as the one who is on his throne and the one who does deserve all of the glory. To worship him. That should be our response to the sovereignty of God. I love this song. Probably my favorite uh, newer Christian song. I say newer, I mean in 21st century. came out about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. But it's, it's the song, In Christ Alone, written by Keith and Kristen Getty. And the, the end of that song says, here's what it means for the, to be a Christian. You ready? No guilt in life, because your guilt's been forgiven. Amen? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. When you embrace him as Lord and Savior, he washes away that, that sin. He washes away that guilt and that shame. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. That's a a, a verse about the sovereignty of God. What it means to know Christ and to be in Christ, to be in his hand, and to know that he commands your destiny. That is a, a great verse about God's sovereignty over our lives.